Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. I've already told you that I'm not a lawyer, and I think it's important to note for this episode that I'm not a drug taker. But I know for many people, the question of getting caught with drugs and is my life going to be over if I am, uh, I think it weighs on a lot of people. So I'm here to get answers to every question that you might have about getting caught with drugs, whether or not it's affecting your travel plans, your employment plans, your rental agreement. And I have criminal law specialist Trudy Cameron here to talk me through it. Trudy, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Can I just say, I think it's an absolutely wonderful idea to do this podcast. Oh, uh, thank I get you. people all the time come up to me and ask me a variety of questions, sometimes about criminal law, which is what I specialize in, but often about things which are completely unrelated. I've listened to a few episodes and I've learned a lot myself. That is wonderful feedback. Well, I'm going to be the person who is asking you all of the questions that I have always wanted to know. I'm going to start with one question, which is about the police involvement in drug charges. Can the police just search me or my car or my home without any form of warrant? The short answer is that the police don't have unlimited powers to do whatever they want, but they do have some powers to stop a person and search a person. They also have some powers to search a person's car, but there needs to be certain things that have happened or circumstances that have arisen that allow police to actually act on those powers. So the most critical thing is that the police need to have what we call a suspicion based on reasonable grounds. And suspicion based on reasonable grounds is just legal speak for them having a proper basis to actually think that the search may result in them finding drugs on you or in your car. Is there a situation that that suspicion is more likely. So say if I'm just in a nightclub versus in a library, would it be more likely that the police are like, "Mm, I think you've come to this club for a reason versus if I'm in the library? I won't name any particular venues in Sydney, uh, but some (laughs) are indeed targeted by police for their known drug activities. So the police can take into account a whole range of different circumstances. One of them can be the location the person is in and any intelligence the police have about that location being known for drug activity or drug use, but they also need to take into account all other circumstances. So if a person in a particular venue which is known for drug activity looks completely normal, is having a fluid conversation, does not appear to be drug affected, and the police don't know anything else about that person or what they've done that night, then they probably don't have a reasonable basis to search them. However, if an undercover police officer is in the female bathrooms and sees two or three women walk out of the same stall after hearing a lot of snorting noises and (laughs) observes them to be acting somewhat unusual and probably a bit different to just being under the influence of alcohol, then there might be a reasonable basis to search one or more of those women. 
When it's a situation that it is a warrant, how do police get a warrant? So the police have to apply for a warrant. And to do that, they need to fill out certain forms and they also need to prepare some supporting evidence and documentation, which needs to basically substantiate or support why a warrant should be granted. So depending on the different type of warrant, a different authorised officer will grant it. So in some cases, police will go to a registrar or a magistrate or in other cases, a judge or a Supreme Court justice and apply for the warrant. What happens if I feel like I've been unlawfully searched? So it depends where you are at the time. If you've already been processed by the police and you're back at home, you can and should speak to a lawyer. Sometimes the police do act outside their powers and if they've unlawfully searched you, they, one, may have committed an offence upon you or two, they may have committed a wrongdoing for which you might be entitled to some sort of compensation or you might be able to consider suing the state of New South Wales, who act on behalf of the New South Wales Police, for the assault in the police physically touching you and searching you and the wrongdoing in that respect. So getting legal advice about that is something which is important. People don't have to do it by all means, but it is something that can be done. The other thing I would urge people to do is make a complaint to the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission. It's a commission which is separate from the police, which investigates and looks into allegations of police misconduct if someone gets caught with a small amount of drugs, actually, I'm probably first going to ask you, what is a small amount of drugs? So small amount has a everyday meaning, a little bit of drugs, but small amount also has a particular legal meaning. So under what we call the Drug Misuse and Trafficking Act, there is a schedule which lists all the prohibited drugs and what relevant quantities are. So take cocaine for an example. The small quantity of cocaine is one gram. Now, the reason that's important is because the amount of the drug can be relevant to either what charge a person ends up with, whether it's a possession charge or whether if they've got a lot of a particular drug or more than a trafficable amount, whether the police charge them with supply. So that's the first thing that's important, but a small amount also is relevant if a person is charged for the court to determine what an appropriate sentence is. The more of a drug a person has, the more serious the sentence is likely to be. It's not the only factor that's taken into account, but it is important when the court considers that. Because they're looking at, it's not just for you, it's a likelihood that you could be looking to give that to other people. Yeah, so that's what's really important where there are people who are found with larger quantities of drugs because if there is what we call a trafficable amount or an indictable amount of a drug, then the police can charge a person with supply and they don't need to prove that the person was actually in possession of the drugs to supply it to someone else or other people they are deemed by the legislation to be in possession of those drugs for the purposes of supply. So sometimes I'll have a person come to me seeking legal advice. They've had five or six caps of MDMA. They had bought them for their own personal use, not to take all at once, but over a period of weeks or months. Technically, that person could be charged with supply if the certain quantity of the MDMA itself is over the trafficable amount. So. I'm really interested to hear more about the different types of 
drugs and what the scale is depending on what type of drug it is. So is talk me through that degree of, of seriousness and is a drug, is a drug, is a drug? <laughs> <laughs> Look, very, very good question because most people will think heroin and ice is much more serious than cannabis or mm. a little bit of ecstasy, which, you know, has a reputation as a party drug. But when the court is sentencing someone for a possession offence, they cannot discriminate in terms of seriousness based on one drug to the other. They can in terms of quantity and how the quantity compares to those different scales, whether it's a small or a trafficable or indictable. However, they can't, for example, give someone a harsher sentence just because they had a small amount of ice as opposed to a small amount of cannabis. Mm, Interesting. So if I am caught with a small amount of any type of drug, how much trouble am I in? So if it's cannabis, the police can actually give someone a cannabis caution, which means that they don't need to go to court. They won't be facing the prospect of a criminal conviction or something on their criminal record. There will always be a record that the police hold that will see that you've previously had a cannabis caution. It's the one exception though. (laughs) (laughs) All other drugs, if you are found to be in possession of them, you can be charged. If you are charged, it means you need to attend court. When a person attends court, they either plead guilty or not guilty. If they plead guilty or if they're ultimately found guilty of the offence, they'll be sentenced. When a magistrate sentences someone for a drug offence, they need to not only take into account how the person committed the offence, how serious the offence is, but they also need to take into account the person's own circumstances, how Mm. old they are, whether they've got any particular vulnerabilities or mental health issues which are relevant to take into account, whether they've got a prior criminal record or not. I was going to say it sounds, I'm guessing, that with these sorts of small quantity amounts, you're probably looking at a lot of first-time offenders and I'm imagining that court days after a music festival or something like that is probably full with a lot of first-time offenders in the courtroom. Yes. I mean, the last couple of years, there have not been as many music festivals on, but (laughs) I remember pre-COVID, there were some days you'd turn up to Burwood Local Court, which is the local court for Homebush and Olympic Park, or the Downing Centre, which gets Centennial Park, and there would quite literally be hundreds of people there charged with possession offences. The police have now spaced it out, so they only give a certain number of people a court attendance notice with one date and then they'll space out the dates. But yes, it's not uncommon to see a lot of people before the court. But as you were saying, first-time offenders with a small amount of a prohibited drug are generally treated much less seriously than someone who's got a larger amount or who's been before the court a couple of times. The court is likely to either give you leniency and the benefit of what us lawyers call a conditional release order without conviction which is basically just a good behaviour bond with no criminal conviction recorded. Or alternatively, the court might consider that a conviction and a fine is important and is warranted. The difference between those two, so if you are let go with a bond that doesn't have a criminal conviction attached to it, or you are, what is the difference on that impact for you of, say, employment or travel? Like, how, how different can that decision affect your, in terms of affecting your life? It can affect people a lot is the short answer, but there's no clear-cut line. So the important distinction is between a conviction and no conviction. It's important to note, though, that 
where no conviction is recorded, that doesn't just make what happened go away. It doesn't mean it's never discoverable. For example, if you're applying for really high-end government jobs, often they will ask a question, have you ever been charged with a criminal offence? Or have you ever received what they call a spent conviction? So a conviction which is immediately spent. And technically, the conditional release order without conviction is something which falls in that category. So just because you get no conviction recorded doesn't mean it never has to be disclosed to an employer or when travelling overseas. That being said, it's not the end of the world because not all employers ask for a criminal history check. Mm. Many, if they do, will only ask for convictions to be disclosed. And then some who do ask if you've ever been charged with an offence will be understanding. Mm. It doesn't make getting a job impossible. It can make it a little more difficult, but certainly not impossible. Travel is something which is much more complicated because every country has different rules about immigration, who they let in, whether you need a visa to travel there or not. So it really depends on the country you're going to. But likewise, some ask, have you ever been charged with an offence as opposed to have you ever been convicted? If they're asking about whether you've been charged, then usually you've got a duty to disclose under the relevant country's laws and legislations. In a situation, I know that there's obviously been a lot of talk and also trials over recent years about pill testing at music festivals. What is stopping the police just parking themselves outside the pill testing festival? Because you think, okay, well, this is in terms of reasonable suspicion, if you're there getting your pill tested, like it's pretty likely that you're going to have drugs on you. So how does that work? There's nothing to stop the police from parking themselves outside (laughs) the pill testing area or conducting some surveillance there is the, the short answer. But what we will often see with these music festivals is an agreement, a policy agreement between police and the organisers of the festival and potentially some government agencies where the police will agree not to do that Mm. and not to be within a certain distance of these pill testing sites for public health reasons. At a music festival, if you're caught with drugs, is this a dramatic arrest scene? Like, are you putting cuffs? Are you thrown on the ground? Or is it a situation that you're given a piece of paper and told to front up to court in a few weeks' time? It can be either. (laughs) Usually it's the latter where a person is given a piece of paper, which is a field court attendance notice. However, in some cases where someone attempts to flee from police or if they've got a really large amount of drugs or a weapon on them, then they may indeed be the subject of a police arrest where there's force used and measures taken by police to handcuff them to prevent any injury or to prevent them from fleeing. So if someone is found with drugs in their possession or if the police approach them and say, I've got this reasonable suspicion, is the best advice in that situation, like don't try and run, don't try and get out of it, just at that point, fess up? Yeah. (laughs) Well, my advice is not to necessarily fess up. My (laughs) advice is always to exercise (laughs) your right to silence. In terms of running, you could be committing a further offence of hindering police in the course of their investigation, or if you decide to run after they'd already stopped and detained you, escaping lawful custody. So running is not advisable unless you're really (laughs) fast. No. (laughs) Do not run from the authorities. (laughs) Do not run from the authorities. Now, in terms of what you do or say to police, 
every person's got a right to silence. What that means is that a person doesn't need to do anything or say anything to incriminate themselves. The police, if they do search you and you've got a an amount of prohibited drugs in your pocket or your wallet or your handbag, they're probably going to find that. It's a personal decision whether you tell the police it's there or not. It doesn't necessarily make it better for you if you tell them. They're going to probably charge you anyway. So what I typically say to people for minor possession offences is, for abundant caution, exercise your right to silence. Be polite. There are some questions you have to answer, like your name and confirming your identity, but beyond that, exercise your right to silence and do so politely and respectfully. If you're under 18, do the police just call your parents? (laughs) No, (laughs) unfortunately not. (laughs) Or fortunately for some children, Mm. um, depending on what their parents are like. So people who are under 18, there are certain police procedures that need to be followed to make sure they have relevant support people and support networks and also have legal advice available to them. People under 18 can still be charged with a criminal offence. However, they are subject to a different jurisdiction or a different type of court, which does have some relaxation of the rules, but it is still a serious matter. For those of us who do have adult responsibilities like a landlord and like a job, who gets told if you're charged with drug possession? If I'm charged, does my employer get told? Does my landlord get told? Like, or, or can I just keep this all to myself? Thankfully, the police do not send out automated text messages to your nearest and dearest and and all of those. Just FYI. (laughs) Um, You can, a a lot of people can keep it secret. You don't need to tell anyone. Sometimes people will find out. For example, if your employer asks you to consent to a national police check and you do, and it shows up on your record if you were convicted or if you're still within the period of your bond for a conditional release order, then obviously your employer will find out. They don't automatically get notified. Your landlord doesn't automatically get notified. And there's no way for someone to do a Google search to see what you've been charged with. So is there anyone who can just see your criminal record? No. Well, the police can, but even within the police Just because someone's a police officer doesn't mean that they can search up whoever they want to check if they've got a criminal record. There's been a number of instances where police have been charged for searching friends, ex-girlfriends or, you know, potential love interests or or other people. It's like guys have all done a bit of stalking, but like that's (laughs) taking it a bit far. Yeah. So the police aren't authorised to just access any information they hold in their own system and database. They've got to have a reason to be able to do it. But beyond the police and beyond the reports and records that are available to the court, no one else can otherwise just get a copy of your criminal history. There is a process, though, where employers or other people can request a national police check or a criminal history check. In Australia at the moment, these are done with the person who's being checked's consent which means that in practice what happens is if you're applying for a new job or you're going for a promotion at work, someone at HR will send you an email and say, hey, we need to do a national police check. Can you fill out this form and give your consent? If you do have a conviction on your record, you then go, oh, what do I do here? (laughs) I can explain. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You can consent, in which case they'll get your criminal history, and then you can also not consent, in which case a pretty big red flag goes up for most employers. 
Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, if you've got nothing to hide. Exactly. <laughs> and I imagine sort of jobs aren't created equal in this space. So I'm thinking if you work with kids or something like that, does this cause more problems for you versus if you just have a fairly standard office job? Yeah, it can. So most people who have a job which involves working with children need a working with children check. A working with children check will be able to access your criminal history and they don't necessarily disclose everything that's on your criminal history, but the working with children check, the purpose of that is to consider whether you've previously been charged or convicted of any offences, which may mean that you pose a risk to children. What about in a situation where, say, if you went to something like a nightclub or a music festival with friends and you had a couple of pills or a small amount of drugs and you were sort of the person who was holding them for everybody and you're the one who gets caught, do you see situations like that of people like, well, this isn't all mine, but if I've got to dob my friends in and I don't want to do this and like I'm sort of half innocent... What do people do in a situation like that? That happens all the time. And there's a few things that can happen. Either a person can be holding drugs or taking drugs into a music festival for someone else, in which case they are technically in possession of the drugs. If they've got a large quantity, say they're taking 50 caps into a music festival for their boyfriend who's a drug dealer, Mm. and the police find them and apprehend them and find the 50 caps, the police will probably charge that person with supply because that is that deemed quantity that you're deemed to be in possession of it for supply. You can, however, raise a defence that you were merely possessing it temporarily. You'd still be guilty of the lesser offence of possession, but you would get off the supply charge, which is much more serious. Mm. Now, the other scenario we see sometimes is a group of five friends going to a music festival, everyone chipping in some money, someone going to a drug dealer, buying five caps or ten caps, and then distributing the drugs amongst their friends. If they're doing that, they're supplying prohibited drugs. doesn't matter if they're not making money off it, they're still supplying. So if they were charged, they could be found guilty or receive advice from a lawyer to plead guilty to that offence. However, if it's a situation where everyone meets up for pre-drinks, Someone foolishly puts their hand up and says, I'll run the gauntlet. Everyone give me your own individual drugs. I'll hold them while we go into the music festival and then I'll give them all back to you. That would fall into that first scenario we spoke about with the girl with the drug dealer boyfriend where you would be guilty of possessing those drugs but not the deemed supply. Wow. There's a lot of risk involved with being the person who is taking them all in. Absolutely. That's why no one should do it. (laughs) Absolutely do not recommend doing it. What's the worst thing that you think can happen to someone if they're charged with drug possession? Well, I should say probably legally, not just in life, but we'll make it a little easier. Yeah. So if it's just a possessed charge as opposed to a supply charge, a person can still technically get sent to jail. The maximum penalty is up to two years imprisonment and people do get sent to jail where they've got really long histories or they've got a large amount of drugs in their own possession. Mm. So a sentence of imprisonment is very much on the table. It's not often that a person is sentenced to imprisonment for merely possessing a drug, but it does happen. Wow. 
what are you looking at if you're charged with drug supply? Depends on the quantity. If you've got what us lawyers call a large commercial quantity, which is kilos of a drug usually, then you're going to go to jail for a number of years if you're found guilty. Whereas a person who's charged with supplying, you know, somewhere between 10 and 50 caps or pills or bags of cocaine, they're looking at a very serious sentence, one which we call an intensive corrections order. It's possible they get something less serious than that, but usually that person would be looking at either an intensive corrections order or a full-time jail sentence, which would mean they go into jail. So an intensive corrections order is technically a sentence of imprisonment, but it's one that people serve in the community. A bit like a suspended sentence, but with a whole heap of additional conditions that someone must comply with. So they're supervised by community corrections. They might have to do community service. They might need to abstain from using drugs. They might need to do treatment programs. And if they breach the terms of that intensive corrections order, they can be taken straight into custody. When someone is charged with drug possession, at what point should I call in a lawyer? And really, what can a lawyer help me resolve? Like if I've been caught with a couple of pills, I know it's me. I know I've got to go to court and say, look, I made a terrible mistake and I'm really sorry. How can a lawyer help me navigate this process? So there's two main things a lawyer can assist with. One, if you're in the company of police who are questioning you and wanting to search you and you don't know what to do, you can call a lawyer at that stage to Mm. get some legal advice. This is like the movie thing of like, call my lawyer. Yes. A person does have a right to speak to a lawyer. They don't always necessarily have the ability to exercise that right before the police search them or anything like that. But at some point in time, a person can, who's in the custody of police, speak to a lawyer to get some legal advice about what they should do in that situation. The lawyer's advice is not going to prevent them from being charged unless there's something quite unusual about the case or it's clear that they're innocent and the lawyer can, you know, clear that up with the police. Mm. The other more common and in some respects more important time that a person can get legal advice is after they've been charged, when they've got their court attendance notice in their hand and they're preparing for court. The sooner you can get advice from a lawyer, the better. A person can represent themselves in court However, if the stakes are high, if you don't want a conviction for travel reasons or work reasons, I think you're best consulting a lawyer. Lawyers are familiar with the process. Most people who haven't been to court have got very little idea about what is actually going on, the process, the procedure, and how to navigate the sentencing exercise, what Mm. to ask for, what words to use. A lawyer helps with, one, providing that initial advice about what the charge means, what it means to the person, the potential consequences for them, and also giving them advice about whether they should plead guilty, whether they might have a defence and should plead not guilty. The lawyer then also provides really critical advice about how to plan for that next stage. So if you are pleading guilty, what to do to prepare for court, things like getting character references and how the character references should be set out, who they should be addressed to, what they say. Other things like the person writing their own letter to the court or doing a bit of research and preparing an assignment to hand up to the magistrate to hopefully persuade the magistrate that they've taken steps to educate themselves, develop insight into their wrongdoings and try and persuade the magistrate that the court can be confident they won't be back again. Like homework ahead of time or like doing yeah. an essay, like why exactly. drugs are bad. Exactly. Not all lawyers ask for that, some do. 
I do recommend some of my clients do it, particularly the younger ones. But the other things that the lawyers can help with is referral into treatment programs if substance abuse is either an issue or becoming an issue. And also just taking a bit of the pressure and the load off. A number of my clients remarked to me, oh, I feel so much better now that I've spoken to you, now that there's a plan in place. And also now that I know I'm not going to have to say anything in court to the magistrate. (laughs) I'm not going to have to stand up and talk. Are most of your clients, when they're facing these sorts of charges, are they terrified? Are they sheepish? Are they defiant? Um, (laughs) Terrified and sheepish more than defiant, but it just depends on the person. It must be nice that you're able to provide that reassurance when you get people who are thinking like, I've, you know, I'm very young. Are most of the people who you work with in this space, are they young? The majority are aged between 18 and say 30, but I have people of all ages just about. It's just when you talk about when people are aged between 18 and 30, I imagine all of a sudden the consequences would start to really bear down and you'd think, I'm never going to be able to go overseas again. I'm never going to get a job again. I'm never going to get a house again. So how much of your job in that moment is being like, your life is not over? It's reassuring a person and explaining that to them is something which comes up a lot and with most clients, understandably so, because most people have a concept and know that a criminal conviction can make life really difficult. However, there is this perception that a criminal conviction will just mean the end of your life. You'll never be able to be employed again. You will never be able to leave Australia ever again. And thankfully, that's not the case. Mm. So there is a degree of reassurance, but there's also a degree of concern that remains because it is still a serious matter and it does still have potentially serious consequences as well. I think a lot of people think about the role of police in society and that it's to stop people from doing harm to other people. And so in a situation where someone is like, you know what, I am choosing to take drugs. It's me. I'm taking them. It's my body. It's my choice. It's not affecting anybody else. What I suppose, what, what's your response or, or thoughts on, on that sort of thinking process? Well, rather than my own, I'll speak from a policy or a government perspective. The reason why parliaments have passed legislation to make it a criminal offence to possess or supply prohibited drugs is more than just about a person and what they decide to do with their own body. Because one, it's not uncommon for for parliament and the government to pass legislation that protects us from harm that we might do to ourselves. Seatbelts are a classic example of that. In the same way, the reason why, well, one of the reasons why it's illegal to possess or take drugs is because there is a risk of harm that a person does to themselves. And it's the government's made it unlawful to do that. But on a broader policy perspective, where a person buys a bag of cocaine or some marijuana or whatever drug to take themselves, they are participating in a market. It's an illegal market. And it's a market which causes a lot of harm because... When drugs are imported, obviously there is crime that occurs in the importation itself, but often when drugs are made overseas, there's harm that's inflicted by way of drug-related crime or organised crime, murders, assaults, very serious criminal activity. But the more important policy perspective is that where a person takes a prohibited drug, 
they create a risk of harm to themselves. They create a strain or a burden on our health resources and our mental health resources. They may be more likely to commit other crimes like assaults or break and enters or sexual offences. And also, particularly where a person's drug use escalates to addiction, it's not only harmful to them, but their loved ones as well. If anyone listening has ever had someone close to them struggle with addiction, they know how much it hurts mm-hmm. um, watching someone go through that. So those are the some of the bigger picture reasons why the government has rendered it unlawful to possess and also to take a prohibited drug. Well, Trudy, I think for a lot of people, particularly a lot of young people, there is probably a great fear of what can happen and worst case scenario if people are caught with drugs. And I'm a very well-behaved person, but I think that in asking the question, I got caught with drugs, is my life over? You have provided such reassuring and really great practical advice for people. So thank you so much for being part of the show. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.